Welcome to my podcast, Coaching in Nature. My name is Dr. Andrea Sibylla Clausen. I am a coach and a medical doctor. Here you'll learn everything about how you can improve your life, your personal well-being and the well-being of our planet. You get amazing coaching and health tips and you will meet inspiring guests who all have one thing in common. They love nature and they care about our planet. Wilderness is a difficult concept to define. And it's not a place, it's really, it's an experience. I'm very happy to have Markham Douglas in today's podcast. You really need to look with deeper vision. You have to look with new eyes into old places to see more and more depth and more and more complexity. Markham is the head of Wilderness School at St. John's College and he has trained for nearly 20 years many, many wilderness guides in South Africa. And I think I can say that Markham has wilderness in his blood. So I'm very excited to have the interview now with him. Please bear with us um, and excuse the local technical quality of the sound during the first two minutes. Welcome with me, Malcolm Douglas. Welcome, Malcolm. <laughs> so we well, have... thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, we have Malcolm. Nice to be chatting to you. Douglas here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Malcolm, you are head of outdoor and environmental education at St. John's College Wilderness School. Uh, can you tell us about your background and how your journey with nature and wilderness started? Okay, well, thanks very much for the opportunity to discuss all of these. My, my journey with, um, with wilderness actually started a very long time ago. I think it's, wilderness is a difficult concept to define. And it's not a place, it's really, it's an experience. So the way that you feel about wilderness um, can be in any, in any spot that you find yourself in. So you could have a wilderness experience in your bedroom in a city, or you could be in a desert uh, with nobody within 100 miles of you. So it really depends on your definition of wilderness. But my, my feelings for, for nature started, I, I can sort of focus them to one uh, incident, which was when my dad was backwashing the swimming pool uh, you know that's to clean out the filter and so on we used to get a lot of frogs and snakes that would come out of that pipe and i think i must have been about five or six years old but um, one of these snakes was flushed out and my dad chopped it in half with a spade and i remember looking at this and just thinking what a beautiful creature it was actually a red-lipped snake one of the nicest looking snakes that you could imagine but um I, I was quite taken by that and I, I remember taking sticky tape and i stuck it together and put it into a shoe box under some grass so you couldn't see the the wound and i remember lying down under the tipuana tree and uh, just looking at this thing and thinking to myself you know why did it have to die and, and that type of thing so it was a one moment in my 
in my life. It really started me in thinking about nature and uh, that we aren't the only things that are out here sharing this planet. So it's been a long journey, but then from there on, it was really getting into into the bush to catch snakes. And then once you interested in where the snake are, then you start thinking to yourself, well, what's that lizard over there? And what's that bird? And which tree is the bird in? And so it really was, one could say, a knowledge-driven experience to start with. But I think I've mentioned to a lot of people before about how you, you really need to look with deeper vision. You have to look with new eyes into old places to see more and more depth and more and more complexity. So the knowledge-based way of getting into wilderness was something that for me led into a much more spiritual um, approach. Many people would do it the other way around, saying spiritually they'd get into the bush and to really enjoy the wilderness. But, um, and then start to learn about the, the ecology and so on. So I'm really the other way around. And then I, I got involved in guide training for many years. I trained in some of the most prestigious private reserves. <laughs> you had first a connection with uh, wildlife and, and especially this special snake that you glued together, that you healed. <laughs> yes. yeah. and, and then you, you um, became aware of the, of the profound impact also on the spiritual uh, level. Is this correct? Yes, that's the way that I approached it rather than, than the other way around, which okay. I think so many people do, which is spiritual and then understanding the nature. Right. Yes. And now I'm eager to learn more. <laughs> what, how, did it, how did the journey continue? <laughs> well, uh, so I got into um, to university and I studied archaeology, realized that that wasn't particularly a growth industry, one could say. And um, I decided to go back into the bush on a full-time basis, which I did as a, as a guide in one of the most uh, well-known local game reserves, which is the Sabi San Fultain. And then from there, I, I started to become involved in the training because they realized I had quite a depth of knowledge and so on. And so within a few months of joining the company, I was made the training officer. Um, and that was pretty much, that set the course of my professional guiding career for the next 19 years yeah so that was kind of you you started as a guide but somehow you had these talents or there was an opportunity and so then you became the trainer that's right yeah so i don't like that old adage where they say that um, you know those that can do those that can't teach uh, i think i have a very practical approach to life i'm I'm not just theoretical or academic. So it's one of those combination things where I'm able to really take my knowledge and convert that into understandable concepts. Um, and not just for the sake of knowledge, but just to be able to, to tell people, this is something that is out there and you take the message from there and develop it for yourself. It's an individual approach. There's not one person uh, one approach for all people. There's not one um, situation that works for all people. So it's really it's an individual approach. Mm. And these wilderness guides or the, the students, your students, um, where do, did they come from? What is their 
what was their expectation and what, uh, what did you learn also in these 19 years of training? Um, I, I learned that there's a great need for connection. Mm. There's people that came from every walk of life. You know, I, I had a, um, a medical doctor from Cape Town. We were all sitting around the fire on the first night of the training course and introducing ourselves. And it got to his turn and he, he said, well, I'm Dr. So-and-so and I've only got a few years to live. And he showed us the scars in his chest. He'd had open heart surgery how many times? And I don't know what's happened to him now, but he just said that regardless of how uh, rewarding his professional life is, he felt the deeper connection to get back into the bush. So, you know, he gave up that whole thing. So I've had people from, from every kind of uh, professional background uh, to youngsters who find that they don't have any direction in life. They don't know what they really want to do in the society that we've created, but they do feel very comfortable in the environment which the world has created. And so they go and they look for a guiding position. Recently, there's um, a lot about uh, the term eco-psychology that you can read in the press or that people call themselves um, eco-psychologists. There's also research going on. So what is environmental education, how you do it now, also at in St. John's um, Wilderness School, um, relating to eco-psychology is this the same or is there a difference or what is your 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 subjective um opinion yeah, well I, t I take that point very well that it's uh, it's a subjective opinion but i think it does it does a couple of things on on several different levels so you talk about eco-psychology so that it might be an umbrella term overlying everything else but if we look at ecological intelligence, it's something which has never been taught in schools. It's, it's, never, it's never been taught in families. It's not mainstream anywhere that I know of. But something that if you do have an ecological education will make sure that you understand is that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Whatever we do as a species has got a consequence and we just blithely ignore that. So, on the wilderness training for the boys, what we do is they need to have a connection to ecology. They need to connect to nature. They need to understand that what they do has got some kind of an impact. And so we'll try to, to educate them regarding that. On the other hand, they themselves have to undergo a journey, which they're doing at the same time as they're going through a hormonal journey. These boys are all sort of grade nine. so. 14, 15 years old, and they're trying to, to work out where they fit in in life. So we give the opportunity to boys to come there without expectations. There's no academic or sporting prestige that follows them from the school. There's no disciplinary history that follows them from the school. They don't have anything to live up to or any reputation to live down to. So it's it's really starting with a blank slate and then it allows them to find their own peace, to find their own center, not, not based on anyone else's expectation. And what you need for that is time and you need exposure to the outdoors. And that's the opportunity that we provide them over that 28 day period.
So yeah, so both so both the environmental element and the psychological element, I suppose, combined together makes up your ecological psychology. Yeah, and I like the term uh, ecological intelligence also as part of it, as connecting to nature and the responsibility and the impact we all have on our environment. Yeah, that's, that's I, I suppose it's very deep experiences that these young kids do. I mean, it reminds me of the passage also in the um, ancient uh, or indigenous people um, having these passages or vision quests in the American Indian um, tradition to become oneself, to see their, their, their own purpose or to, to feel, you know, who am I in mm. the world? Mm. What is my purpose? Does this also relate to, to your observations or is it like a... Yes. Yeah, definitely it does. Um, what motivated me a lot is a guy, Elder Leopold. I don't know if you know of his works, but um, the work of Elder Leopold and then also Edward Abbey. And then there's Richard Raw, who has written from a Christian perspective about um, this kind of rites of passage, although he doesn't make it prescriptive to be Christian. But the fact is that all of mankind really goes through some form of a, a change. Um, you know, from childhood into manhood. And we, we, we look at basically boiling his concept down to five serious principles, which is that um, your life is not about you. You're not that important. You are going to die. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple of those central messages that we actually try to reiterate for the boys. And they start to realize it themselves, they, that they're not the, the center of the universe and that they're only one part of the whole process. And so, yes, we do, we do look at some of the uh, mainstream literature and thoughts that are out there on this concept. Have you heard also some transformational stories from some of the boys that are now grown-ups, and how do they look back on this experience, and any observations or insights that you want to share? Yes, I, well, look, I think on the longer-term basis, it gets more and more diluted and, and people go in different directions and so on. But the message is still central and core to their, their existence. But if one has a look at the exit interviews from the school, the boys in their final grade 12 year have listed the experience that they had in grade nine with our wilderness school as being their most important um, event, you could say, during their whole school career. And that was... I think, if I'm not correct, uh, 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 more than 40% of the boys on their exit interview said that that was their most experience, uh, their, their, their best experience that they had. I would have to go and look up more clearly what the, the exact uh, statistics were, but yeah, that's the sort of sentiment. If you talk about the, the history of the guiding uh, training that I've done, which is more treat, um, teaching of adults, then... I can have a look at the list of students that I've taught over the years and I still keep that list today and who are still in the industry. And there are many very senior trainers, uh, very senior lodge managers, reserve managers and so on who are still in the industry. And I think, I hope that some of the messages that I got across to them are still there. Mm. And that um, my, my, my key lesson that I try and get across is that, People do what you do, not what you say. Mm. 
and I've always tried to teach and to lead by example rather than trying to tell people how to be. Mm. So they will find their own center based on on what they've seen other people doing. And I think that's the key reason why so many people are still in the industry that many years later. Have you ever been uh, to Europe, Malcolm? I haven't, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I wanted to ask you uh, what, what, what might be the difference between the African bush and some nature experience in, in Europe, because sometimes people tell me here in Europe, well, why do we have to travel to Africa in the bush? Because, you know, CO2 emission and travel and uh, COVID and stuff like this. And I always say, no, no, it's different. You know, it, African bush is a different experience. And uh, what is your, do you have an opinion or can we substitute <laughs> the African experience mm -hmm. with some European wilderness experiences? I don't know. It's just a question. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to go to Europe to, um, you know, to have that contrast. There are places in South Africa without that wild feeling, which would be exactly the same as Europe. So yeah. you can have a wilderness experience there. There's no question about that. Yeah. But the main issue about that is a question of time. And the process that takes place in the African environment will be accelerated over that in, in for example, Europe or a more tame area of Africa. So if you're sitting around a fire in a place where you know there are no lions, no hyenas, no anything to come and bite you in the back, you're not going to be nervous. You're not going to have that kind of feeling of being part of nature. Whereas if you are in a place which has got that much more critical um, being in the here and now, being absolutely present and listening for every crackle of a stick or something, then the process works that much faster. Yeah. So, so I think it's really it's about duration and it's it's just about the the depth of the kind of experience that you are going to have. Mm. So it's an acceleration of this deep experience. Yeah, it, it, yes. Um it, going back to that elder Leopold, um he wrote a a story he was um an ecologist and a lecturer in in wildlife management but he wrote a story called Quesadilla. It was about a mountain in Arizona. And what, the way he described it was that there used to be a bear that lived on top of that mountain and it would come down once a year and kill a cow and feast on the cow and then disappear back up into the mountains and spend the rest of the summer up there. And then the government hired a bear trapper who came and he actually killed the bear. And the way that he ends that story is to say that um, when he looks up in the mountain now, it's just a mountain. It used to have a bear on it. And the feeling because of the absence of the bear has changed completely. Mm. And you have got that environment. You have a mountain without a bear. But if you come down into the Kruger Park or into any one of the private game reserves or a place where there is all of this um, nature around you, you realize that this is a different place. This is how it used to be. It's elemental and it really accelerates and, and heightens your experiences in that area. Mm. 
Could you share with us uh, one of the maybe difficult or let's say dangerous situations you have experienced in wilderness? And um, yeah, what happened and uh, yeah, how did you manage it? <laughs> I've had a lot of experiences in, in the wild which were potentially dangerous, but I think it's probably true to say that the most dangerous experiences in wild areas are ones that I didn't even know existed. So, for example, standing right next to a puff header that could have bitten me, but I didn't see the snake. Oh, or wow. um, I went right past a leopard or something that I didn't notice, and because it didn't make a noise, I just walked on. You know what I mean? So there are situations that you don't know exist, yeah. but that are potentially there, and uh, you are actually walking past a very, very dangerous situation. But in terms of the ones that I do know about, um, I don't mind so much for myself. If I'm just by myself, you know, I've only got myself to look after. But when I have to look after a lot of other people, that's when, to me, it escalates and becomes extremely dangerous. And I have to say that one of the things that really gets me is um, African elephants. They are they're very intelligent. They're very fast. <laughs> they're very powerful and it's one of those things which the more pressure we put on them mm. the more potentially dangerous they become and um, i've had some bad experiences i remember once um, training some guides and we had one of these learner drivers who was now trying to drive the game drive vehicle and we had a very very irate elephant cow who charged the vehicle knocked over a massive tree which almost collided with our vehicle. She tried to come and gore the vehicle, but she'd managed to get herself tripped up on the tree and she couldn't get around the tree in a hurry. Um, but that, that was potentially an extremely dangerous situation where I had seven or eight guys on a vehicle who were untrained, inexperienced, very shaken. Um, and I just had to try and keep as calm as possible. And, you know, I didn't get my rifle out and immediately try to shoot the elephant. Yeah. Um, but we just we just try to keep the situation diffuse as much as possible. Um, and otherwise, if you escalate, I, I don't believe in shouting at the animals or firing a so-called warning shot. Just try to keep the energy level as quiet as possible, and the animal will pick up on that energy level and hopefully diffuse the situation as well. And that's luckily what happened under that circumstance. But yeah, I've, I've had danger knocking at the door a lot with lion, with buffalo. I've spent two hours in a tree with two buffaloes underneath me. Oh. Um, that, was quite, <laughs> that was quite good fun because I knew I was safe. Um, I've been charged by lions and, you know, all of that stuff. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, each situation is different and you never know from day to day how you're going to respond. What I'm hearing staying calm and staying connected with the energy and... Um Staying in an observant mind is obviously helpful. Yeah, it's very helpful. It's not always possible. <laughs> There's times when you escalate very badly into a situation of, okay, now nobody else understands how dangerous this is. Yes. And you have to try and impress upon them that do what I'm telling you to do and do it now. Do you understand that sort of a thing? So. As I say, that's why if I'm by myself, it's a lot easier to manage. But when you have other people who 
who really don't give a continental and they, they'll just stand there and try and take photographs of a charging elephant. That's not my idea of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Get out, please. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I do escalate into panic sometimes, but uh, I try to minimize that. <laughs> it was probably the slight emergency in your, in your voice that makes people do what you want them to do in this moment. Yes, exactly. That's true. Yeah, yeah. What was the greatest lesson nature told you personally and uh, or any insights you would like to share? Yeah, I think I've, tr I've tried a few times to veer off the path that I chose many, many, many years ago. I've veered into advertising and I've done, I had a, um, a gifting company and I've had a chocolate company and all sorts of different things. And not one of them has ever showed me the same sort of value um, that my natural history career has done. And so I think um, there's a word for it and I'm just trying to reach for it now, but I think being able to dedicate yourself to that and to, and to stick on the path of what you actually chose for the reason that you chose it is the most important lesson that I've learned out of nature. It's obedience, one could say. You know, I, I, I take the lesson, I've learned it, I've absorbed it, I know why I like what I'm doing and I need to stick with it. And every time that I've gone back to it, I found my, my roots and I found my, my happiness. And every time I've gone off there, it's been a problem. So I think it's one of those things where they say, follow your heart. Often it's not a good idea, you know, because there can be dragons as they say, but if you really have something that has worked for you and that you feel that you need to dedicate your life to, then you should actually go for that. And that's what nature has really taught me. An elephant does what an elephant has to do. It doesn't try to be what it isn't. Um, and, you know, everyone has a role, and that was my role, and I've stuck with it. Mm. <laughs> so also, Don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. And, um, mm. Yeah. Is this also something you, you tell your students or, you know, beat the kids or the adults uh, that you tell them frequently or other things you hear yourself saying over the years frequently, like when you're teaching, when you're sharing your experience? I think yeah. the lessons that I will try and get across to people are more by example than by, mm -hmm. by teaching and by telling. Mm. So when people see when I turn over a stone and I'm looking for a snake or a scorpion or a lizard or whatever, and they see the enthusiasm that I have for that at age 59, <laughs> they'll realize, okay, well, this is what, what really works for him. He loves that. And enthusiasm and the ability to, uh, to show some kind of zest and enjoyment of what you're doing is the key thing. And that starts to enthuse people. And when people get enthused, they start to actually do their job better. They'll start reading. They'll start to look into elements that work for them. So if you like birds, become an expert in birds. Just take a pair of binoculars and go and look at birds. If you like trees, do that. If you like working with people in nature, do that. But every different element has um, a different approach. And that's what I try to encourage the people. So follow your, follow your passion. Follow your... I, I don't like it. I think it's a cliche to follow your passion, to follow your heart, but to follow the direction that is shown. And I think that really comes out from inside. 
it's something that wells up to the surface and you don't know how it actually gets there but something just bites you it yeah. might be something that a, an, a pivotal person in your life tells you and that just resonates with you or it might be an experience that happens to you and that resonates with you so you know for me with a snake that there was something nobody could ever have created that situation yes it is exactly. one that i realized for myself and, and and that's the sort of lesson in a very weird way that i try to get across to my yeah, to my I, students I and my pupils it's something the unexpected that suddenly you know that this is something that there's something in mm. it oneself. yes Nobody yeah tell me before you know it just happens you know like that's right yes a specific yeah. connection be it with a bird or an insect or a tree so that's that's also yeah yeah nature give us when we expose ourselves i think what you yeah. sorry what you said there exposure is a very crucial word I think with for parents these days, there's a lot of worry about how dangerous the world has become. You try to overprotect your children. We have to overregulate everything, but you can't mitigate against all danger. You can keep children off the dangerous streets. You can keep them out of those dangerous environments. But nature itself is a place that you need to expose your children to on a much more regular basis. Because I think that's where so many of these important lessons are, are learned. And, and, and the parents are not doing that. They're not taking them out for a hike, maybe even for a picnic near a, a lake or something. You know, there's so many weaknesses that we have as um, a parental group these days. And I understand why, but we need to try and overcome our fears on that. How would you say now that, um the climate crisis or COVID um, influences or affects your work at the moment. Are you, be, are you able to go out end of this year with the kids again? Or how is it showing right now, the development of these crises? Yeah, it's, look, it's been probably the most important time the last six months or so for children to actually get out, but they can't get out. So for them to have got into the garden or to, to have some opportunity to get away from the pressure of learning and so forth would be one of the ideal opportunities for this type of education. But now at the end of the year, we are having a group coming out again. Our government has given us permission to join up in, in groups of, you know, <laughs> larger than just a few. And so we will be having the boys come out in November. And that's, I mean, I think it's going to be a fantastic experience for them because with this lockdown, with the, the realization that what they've taken for granted, which is nature, the appearance of a, um, a beautiful landscape, quiet, the sound of flowing water, those sorts of things, they haven't experienced that for a long time. And I think what we've done is we've taken for granted not only our natural environment, we, it just passes over us, but we've also taken for granted the connections that we have with other people. And by being isolated like this, it's actually, I hope, rekindle some of those feelings of, of connection with your family and with friends and with people that you might not phone once, you know, a year, even. but to say, you know what, that person is important in my life and I think I need to connect again. So on both levels, I think they're going to connect again as a friend group and to connect with nature. And I really hope that this intervention is going to make quite a difference in their, their lives. 
I'm glad to hear this. Is we'll happening. see. Mm. We yeah, it is happening, and yeah. we're good. We're good for next year as well. So that's nice. No yeah, problem. that's good. And until the next pandemic. <laughs> Unfortunately, Mark, I'm becoming now. Uh, yeah, sure. End of the interview, and my last question for you. I finally, I, I, I ask all guests um, in the show this question: Do you have a favorite wild nature place on this planet, and any special memories of a specific area that touched you deeply, that you would like to share with us? It sounds cliched, but there's something about the Kruger National Park that is absolutely special. It's a place that has got so much diversity. It's got so much wildlife, um, so much wilderness that you would actually find within yourself. It takes you back very quickly to a feeling uh, that I've had my whole life. We used to visit the Kruger Park every August as a family. And so, so that's why that resonates so much with, with me. It's, it's a familiar environment. It's not the wildest place in the world. But for me, it's one of my most special uh, places in the world. Um, something, a place that I really thought of a lot was Mount Mulanji in Malawi. So climbing to the, the, the top of Mount Mulanji, an amazing experience, just a whole, a whole different feeling. And it transports you back to what was potentially, you know, the, like a, a prehistoric Africa and how it must have been in the old days. And these huge granite faces and waterfalls coming down them. And at the same time, the trees, the endemic trees there, the Molanji cedar, which has been logged almost to extinction. And to me, it's, it's a beacon of something where there is hope. At the same time, you know, we have to remember that there is damage happening and we have to try to, to, to moderate all of that. And uh, for some reason, Molanji just uh, resonates with me very deeply. But my favorite place is still Kruger Park. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Malcolm. Yeah, I'm oh, well, uh, very, uh, I'm very uh, blessed that I, I got you on the interview and we had this beautiful conversation. And uh, I, I'm sure we keep in touch. And I'm, I hope I'm back soon in South Africa. I miss it a lot. Yeah, we're back into the summer. Thanks very much for the opportunity, um, yeah, Andrea. It's no. been fantastic talking. Uh, thank you. This was it for today. Next episode will be about CO2 emission trade. And you will learn about how it works and how a startup is tackling the challenge to support companies to reduce CO2 emissions. Thank you for listening. You find all relevant information about some of the articles or books mentioned in the podcast by Malcolm on my blog on iamwilderness.te. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe, um, become a follower and recommend it to your friends.